Amen. Well, good morning and happy Easter. It is Resurrection Day and there's nothing like preaching the empty tomb to an empty room. And so here we are. It's, uh, but we're thankful that we can be together even if it is through live stream. And I was just thinking, y'all look so good dressed up in your Sunday best, your Easter Sunday best. Well, at least most of you. In fact, some of you I still have your pajamas on and I'm not sure why you would go to church in your pajamas, but I guess we'll have a little grace today. Anyway, today we celebrate the most important event in all of history. We celebrate the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All that we believe as Christians depend upon this day. It is the hinge to eternity. In fact, some of you might be thinking, what's the big deal about the resurrection? Why is it so important to believe the resurrection? And let me say this. Your eternal destiny depends upon it. In fact, Romans 10.9 says this, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. There is salvation in no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. It is through Jesus Christ, and it is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we are saved when you believe it in your heart. And the fact is, what you believe about the resurrection has eternal consequences. So let me ask you, what do you believe about the resurrection? You personally Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that he was buried, and that on the third day he was raised? Because without believing that truth, you do not have eternal salvation. What you believe about the resurrection has eternal consequences. The big idea of the message today is this. Eternal salvation comes through belief in the good news of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Eternal salvation, eternity in heaven, it comes through belief in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 today. I would encourage you to go to that passage, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts, Romans, and you've got 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's the most comprehensive passage of Scripture on the resurrection. In fact, this whole chapter is about the resurrection. There's 58 verses. We're not going to look at 58 verses today because then you're going to miss your lunch. But we're going to spend some time looking at the first 20 verses. Now, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, a church that he had spent 18 months with, teaching, training, sharing the gospel. The problem was, is that a skeptical attitude had started to creep into the church. And he couldn't just let that go. So he writes this letter, he writes this portion of the letter to deal with the skepticism about the resurrection. The the resurrection has too many implications just to leave it alone. So he reminds them of why the resurrection is true. And he gives us three reasons that we know the resurrection is true. Three reasons. Here's the first reason. We know the resurrection is true because of the changed life evidence. Because of the changed life evidence. Look at at chapter 15, verse 1. 
He says, now I would remind you, brothers, and when he says that, he says, it, it really means brothers and sisters, of the gospel. And he says this, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul's reminding the Corinthians of what he had taught them. And like many of us, we can forget what we've been taught. Or we can allow false teachings to start to infect and to pollute our, what we've been taught. We can get confused about the truth. And so Paul doesn't want there to be any confusion about the resurrection. Why? Because your eternal destiny is dependent upon the resurrection and your faith and trust in the resurrection. But notice what he says. He says, now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. In fact, let me give you five aspects of the gospel. I first, I believe it was David Platt when I first saw that. It's first of all, it speaks of the holiness of God. God is holy. He is only. There's none other like him. He is perfect. He is eternal. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present. And because of God's holiness, he cannot allow sinfulness into his presence, which leads us to the second aspect. And that's the sinfulness of man. The Bible tells us we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And that sinfulness, our sin nature, has separated us from a holy God. But then that takes us to the third aspect. And that's the sufficiency of Christ. God the Father sent His Son, Jesus Christ, God the Son, into this world to live a perfect sinless life, a life that we could not live. And He went and He died a sacrificial death on the cross in our place. And on the third day, what happened? He was raised. That was sufficient for God's requirement for justice. The holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the sufficiency of Christ, but then this. The necessity of faith. The Bible tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that uh, that we are saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. We must have faith in the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. It means we must turn from our sin and turn to Jesus Christ. Turning means that we repent and we embrace Jesus for who He is and what He has done. And that leads us to the fifth aspect of the gospel. And that's the urgency of eternity. We're not promised another day. In fact, I would tell you with what we are going on right now with the COVID-19, there's a lot of people that are questioning. They're wondering about eternity. They're wondering about heaven and hell. They're wondering about the resurrection. And the fact is, there is no salvation Apart from Jesus Christ, we're not promised another day. So if there's not been a time where you've turned from your, your, your sinful self and turned to Jesus as eternal, for eternal life, then I would just encourage you, do that today. Paul says, he says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. He says, I preach to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Notice the log- logical progression there. He preached it. You received it, now you're standing in it, and that is by which you are being saved or which you are being changed. Now the fact is, the only way the gospel has value to you is not if it's preached, but it must be received. He says, you received it. If you don't receive it, it has no value. I can tell you I've got $100 in my pocket, which I don't. 
It's rare that I have $100 in my pocket. In fact, I can't tell you the last time I had $100 in my pocket. But that $100 in my pocket has no value to you unless I give it to you. But then you must do what? You must receive it. That's the only way it's going to have any value. And the fact is, it's a grace gift. And now, based on the fact that you have that gift, you have to stand in that. That's, the, that's, that's evidence of true salvation. It's like, this is where I stand. I could tell you 22 years ago when Pam and I came to Christ, our lives changed drastically. And we said, that old life, we're not there anymore. We're living a new life, and this is where we're standing. We're standing on the rock of Jesus Christ. The gospel is a message that changes. Notice what it says. I preach to you which, with, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. And the fact is that once you receive the good news of Jesus Christ, your life now starts to change. And each day you become less and less like your old life and more and more like Jesus. That's what we call sanctification. And so Paul is reminding them of that. He said, standing in their faith was proof of their salvation. Their change was proof of their salvation. Listen, if, if your faith hasn't changed you, your faith hasn't saved you. The fact is, without the resurrection, there are no changed lives. So Paul moves from the changed life evidence to, secondly, the historical evidence. To the historical evidence. In fact, Paul reiterates that the resurrection is an actual historical event. It happened on a day in history. And he pounds this nail three different ways. First of all, he pounds it with scriptural evidence. Look at verse 3. He says, for I, remember, he's speaking to the church in Corinth, but he's also speaking to us. This was 2,000 years ago, but it's true today. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared. He reminds them of what He had delivered to them. And it was of first importance. It was, it, was a, a, it was a statement of priority. In fact, he says there's nothing else in Christianity that is more important. That's why Paul spends so much time here on the resurrection. He wants us to know. He wants you to know the importance of the resurrection. He starts with Christ. That Christ died. Listen, if you don't start with Christ, you're starting with the wrong place. If you're wrong on Jesus, you're wrong on the gospel. If, you, if there is no Christ, there is no Christianity. You can't be wrong about Christ and right about Christianity. And that includes the resurrection. Now notice what he says. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. When he talks about the scriptures, what is he talking about? He's talking about the Bible. Tell me about the Bible, Bill. I'd love to. The Bible is it's 66 books written by 40 different authors over, over 1,500 years on three different continents, all inspired, all superintended by the Holy Spirit. 
You have, you, in fact, many times we'll say that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, where the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Hundreds of prophecies about the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, when you look, starting in the Old Testament, going all the way back to Genesis, you see this scarlet thread. You see the, the genealogy and the prophecies of Jesus Christ weaving its way through all of the books of the Bible, leading to this moment in time, to the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says this, I, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. In fact, it's pretty amazing when you look at hundreds of prophecies, all perfectly fulfilled. Now, there's mathematicians that have, that, have, that have studied this and they say that it would be amazing for him to even uh, accomplish two or three of those prophecies perfectly. In fact, one mathematician said if he, if he were to only accomplish eight of those prophecies, to fulfill eight of those prophecies, that would be like uh, one in ten to the 17th power. Now, for you math brains, you're thinking that's a lot of zeros and you would be right. But for those of you that need illustrations, I've, I heard it this way once. It would be like taking silver dollars and covering the whole state of Texas with two feet of silver dollars and putting one there with a red X on it and burying it somewhere. And then you were to put on a blindfold and walk through the state of Texas and at some point reach down, pull up one silver dollar, and that would be one in 10 to the 17th power. Jesus fulfilled Hundreds of prophecies perfectly. That's why I love reading the Old Testament and seeing all of these Old Testament prophecies. The fact is, notice these four verbs here. He says, Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared. This is, this is so key to the gospel. Jesus didn't just appear but he died. He was buried. He was raised. And he appeared. So he pounds the nail of historical evidence with scriptural evidence. But secondly, he takes his hammer and he pounds it again with eyewitness evidence. After he was raised from the dead, he appeared. Look at verse 5 again. It says, and then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, meaning they've died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Okay, think about this for a minute. You've just spent three years with Jesus, sitting around a fire, eating food with him, walking between Jerusalem and Galilee, spending time with him, listening to his teachings. And now you go up to Jerusalem and he's arrested and you watch as he's, he's beaten and you watch as he's nailed to a cross and he gives up his last breath. And you see him buried in this tomb and the tomb is sealed. And then all of a sudden you start hearing that he's been resurrected. And then he appears. Think about it. How would you respond I'm thinking, I'm freaking out a little bit. I mean, I don't know if you ever saw The Great Race, Mr. Bean, where he says, a freaked out. Um, not very good at that, but the fact is, it was just one of those moments where like, but Jesus appeared. First, it says he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. And then to the 12, 
That would be the 12 apostles. And certainly we know that Judas at that point had hanged himself. So it would have been Matthias who was chosen in Acts chapter 1. And then it says, not only to the 12, then he appeared to 500 brothers, speaking of men at one time, most of whom are still alive. What's Paul saying? Go talk to them. They're still alive. In fact, this doesn't even include all the women and children that saw him alive. And then he appeared to James. That would have been his brother who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah until after the resurrection. And then he became one of the leaders in the church. And then he appeared to all the apostles. It was a truth of the resurrection that turned these men from fear and, 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 and despair when Jesus was, was uh, crucified to after they had seen him resurrected to preaching the gospel with boldness. Why would they do that? Because they had seen the resurrected Christ. They were willing to die for the truth. Listen, most people would not die for the truth. But certainly nobody would die for a lie. And they were willing to preach with boldness no matter what would come because they understood that Jesus was alive. So Paul pounds the nail with scriptural evidence. He pounds the nail with eyewitness evidence. And then he pounds the nail with personal evidence. Look at verse 5 or verse 8. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, meaning I was born at the wrong time, was God's time, which wasn't the wrong time, he appeared also to me. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, but because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Paul turns to his own experience. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. When did he appear to Paul? Well, Paul was known as Saul, Saul of Tarsus. He was one of the great persecutors of the church, of those that were followers of Jesus Christ. And he had gone to the leaders of the, of the, uh, of the temple, the Jewish uh, leaders, and he had gotten um, papers to be able to go up to Damascus and to, to be able to arrest those that were followers of the way, followers of Jesus Christ, and bring them back to Jerusalem to be persecuted. And on his way on the road to Damascus, he had this incredible experience where he in, encountered the risen Lord. His life was absolutely transformed. Now what's amazing about this is Paul doesn't lead with his testimony. He's already told about the scriptural evidence. He's already told about the eyewitness evidence. I mean, it just doesn't start by saying, well, let me tell you how Jesus changed my life. Because if you start with that, somebody might say, well, let me tell you how being a vegan changed my life. <laughs> it would certainly change my life. No more steak. Or let me tell you how transcendental meditation changed my life or, or, or hot yoga changed my life. Now that would change your life. But we, we end up comparing experiential matters. Paul understood that a personal witness is rooted in scriptural evidence. 
and in eyewitness accounts. Now, Paul talks about himself as being the least of the apostles. See, he wasn't one of the original 12. See, he had seen the resurrected Christ, which made him considered an apostle. He was called by God. And he makes it clear that his calling was an act of grace. And the fact is, all of our callings is an act of grace. Look at verse 9. He says, for I am unworthy to be, uh, uh, for I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by this, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. It was all by the grace of God. And the fact is, we are saved by grace through faith. We're all undeserving of grace. So Paul gets to this point, and he's thinking, we should all be saying, yes, we agree that Jesus was raised from the dead. But there's still some that are arguing the facts. And so he moves from the changed life evidence and from the historical evidence to the logical evidence. We know the resurrection is true from logical evidence. In fact, Paul was incredulous at this point. Look at verse 12. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? The fact is, he's saying, you're just picking and choosing what you want to believe about Christianity. And that's, that's cafeteria Christianity. And I have a little bit of this, a little bit of this. I'm not going to eat this. But the fact is, if there's parts of the gospel that you don't believe, then you don't believe. So Paul takes the line of logic. And he says, okay, you want your brand of Christianity? Let me show you the consequences, the implications of rejecting the resurrection. First of all, it would mean that Christ has not been raised. Look at verse 13. He says, but if, and these are conditional statements. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. The problem with this logic is Paul has just proved from changed lives evidence and, 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 and from historical evidence that Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus is alive. So he moves on. Verse 14, it means our preaching is in vain. If Christ isn't raised, then our preaching is vain. That's not a good thing for me because I don't want to be preaching in vain. What does it mean in vain? Useless, empty, hollow, meaningless. I can just imagine after a service, you all come up to me and you say, Bill, that was just so empty. It was, it was, it was vain. It was useless. And I'm thinking, thank you. I appreciate that. Listen, our preaching would be in vain. He says that in verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And not only is our preaching is in vain, but our faith is in vain. It is in vain. Why? Because the object of your faith is dead. A dead Savior cannot give life. All the great men of the faith would have been faithful for nothing. If there is no resurrection then whom do you believe for eternal life? Mother Nature? The universe? Doesn't it bother when you say, well, I'm just, I'm just trusting in the universe. What does that even mean? Or you're trusting in yourself. Listen, if you can't trust God to raise Jesus from the dead, you can't trust Him to do anything. The fact is, what are you hoping in if you aren't hoping in Jesus Christ? What are you believing in if there is no resurrection? 
But then, fourth, we see that those that preach the resurrection are just liars. Look at verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. I'd be a liar. Those that preach Christ would be liars. All the church fathers would be liars. Paul is saying, you'd have to look me in the eye and just tell me I'm a liar. All those that saw the resurrected Christ, you'd have to tell them they're liars. But then here's the fifth implication. I I believe this is the most important one. Your sins would not be forgiven. This is devastating. Look now at verses uh, 16 and 17. He says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you're still in your sins. Meaning, you're still under God's condemnation. Do you realize what it means to have your sins forgiven? That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. That was, that was, that was, that was, that was shown to be true through his resurrection. That's what the resurrection accomplishes. There's no guilt, there's no shame, there's no condemnation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us he, he became sin who knew no sin that we might receive the righteousness of God, meaning Jesus took on the cross our sins and God placed upon us the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's what Martin Luther calls the great exchange. But if you believe there's no resurrection, then that would mean, that would imply you're still in your sins and you're still under God's wrath the resurrection is God's seal of satisfaction and if there is no forgiveness of sins then this there is no hope for those that die it's over no eternal life no hope no hope of ever seeing a loved one who's died in Christ and we would just despair like everyone else It's like Paul is saying, listen, if you have the guts to say there's no resurrection, then you better have the guts to say you'll never see your loved ones again and there is no hope for those that die. And then he says this, if all of this is true, then we're all just pitiful. I mean, pitiful. Look look at verse 19. He he says this, if in Christ we we have hope in this life only, We're all people most to be pitied. I mean, our only hope is in doing our next deal or having a relationship or whatever else we look towards. He said, then we're just pitiful. We have no eternal life. It's like in that moment, Paul starts to turn away, head down, dejected. But then he turns back. And he says, but in fact, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He says, Christ has been raised. He says, you are no longer in your sins. In fact, we've looked at the implications. We've looked at, at what happens if we're no longer, if, if, if there is no resurrection. But now let's look at the significance of the truth of the resurrection. Look here. It means that we aren't pitiful. There is hope. 
Your sins are forgiven. The gospel preachers aren't liars. Your faith is not in vain. Our preaching is not in vain. And Christ has been raised. He is alive. That is the resurrection. That gives us hope. That gives us a future hope. And, and we can glory in that. And that's what, that's what Easter reminds us of. The truth of the resurrection. Now, I'm going to have a worship team come up. I wonder what I want to do now is I want us as a church family to worship. I want us to be so overwhelmed with God's resurrection that we're seeing at the top of our lungs, that our hearts are so full. So I want you to stay with us and celebrate the resurrection with us. Now, let me just say this. There may be some of you today that for the first time, you're believing in the resurrection. God is moving in your heart. And I would just encourage you right where you are just to even pray, God, I confess that I'm a sinner and I'm in need of a Savior and I believe that Jesus is God and that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. I I turn from my sins and I turn to Jesus Christ as my only hope for eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this amazing passage of Scripture, but more importantly, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ in whom we have life. God, I just ask that that by the power of your Spirit, you would use this message, but I also pray that you would use what we're getting ready to sing to move our hearts draw us closer to you, deepen our relationship with you, Jesus, our our Savior, our Lord, in whose name I pray.